Climbing Mayhem. I'm glad you asked. One day, Ty Wolf Jones and I were talking about some of the biggest, hairiest problems on earth. And we started obsessing about the question, can sustainability and capitalism coexist? Look, because isn't what we've been doing the past 40 years not really working? No, it's not. And this blame the big business route where we've made for-profit companies and corporations the enemies, the martyrs of this climate mess we're in, isn't working. Well, don't get us wrong. It might be true. It just hasn't stopped us from emitting tons more carbon, creating tons more plastic waste, and degrading our landscapes even more every day. So don't we need to do something different? Isn't there a huge window of opportunity here? Yes, we need change, which means we need innovators, big thinkers, people out there willing to take the risks. Yes, we need people willing to tackle the hardest, most nebulous problem right now, climate change, and we need to align incentives to do so. They need to be able to make money off of these earth-defining solutions. So, coupling our love for startups and planet Earth, we had to talk to these people. And Climate Mayhem was born. So listen along while we speak with entrepreneurs and operators in different verticals of climate tech who are striving to make a difference. Oh, and make some money while doing it. And from some pretty incredible companies like Impossible Foods, EVgo, Drone Seed, Carbon Collective, Floodbase, and even mission-driven venture capitalists. And are you an entrepreneur or someone about to get into this space? Guarantee you'll definitely learn something from these impressive visionaries and learn just how possible it is to take on this seemingly impossible. Mayhem on. Josh Garrett is CEO and co-founder of Redwood Communications. They're a PR firm that's on a mission to help curb the climate crisis by telling the stories, telling the stories of amazing companies behind incredible solutions. But what does that really mean, Jacob? Well, Ty, climate change, it's complex. And some of the mechanics behind the solutions, they kind of are too. So how should a company simplify the what and the how, so people really get it. Well, that's where Redwood Comics comes in. And they've done this for a lot of companies. Some you might even recognize, like Google Nest, The Nature Conservancy, and Rocky Mountain Institute. And they just happen to be the PR agency of a few of our guests as well, including Drone Seed, Floodbase, and a few more you're going to hear soon. Josh, he's a cool cat. He's worked in journalism at the Huffington Post, politics, worked for the New York mayor, and tech a company called Antenna. He has this calm exterior, but it really hides this deep enthusiasm for the natural world that we really try to suss out for the interview. So Ty, what did we talk about? Well, we talked about a lot, but a few of the things were how the zeitgeist of quote unquote talking about climate has changed over the last 30 years. How do we create more brands like Tesla? But really, we dig in a lot around the failure of our current climate messaging and the whole movement around sacrificing to save the planet. Pretty cool. 
Yeah. And maybe a new way to frame it and approach it that could work. I think you're going to dig this one. Enjoy and mayhem on. Mayhem on. Josh, thanks so much for coming on. Jacob, Ty, great to see you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great. It's definitely great to have you. You know, Ty and I are thinking about how to communicate climate change all the time, since that's kind of in some way the point of, of why we're doing the show or one of the points. I thought we'd start off with asking you a really, you know, hardball question. What's your favorite beer style? If you had to, if you had to pick and why? Yeah, that's, well, that's a tough one. I could give you the long version. I'll give you the short version. I am from the West Coast. I love a nice, just piercingly bitter West Coast IPA. So <laughs> your your Stone IPA, your Green Flash, your uh, nice. Sculpin. That's that's oh. really my go-to. And I'll add, my dad was was a big beer drinker, and he discovered Lagunitas IPA in like the early '90s, before there was oh. like a craft beer movement. And so. Mm-hmm. I like to say he was a bit of a trendsetter, even even though he was a old guy <laughs> at the time. <laughs> Love it. You mentioned the word Sculpin. What's that? Yeah, that Sculpin IPA is from Ballast Point Brewing. They're based in San Diego. Okay, mm. uh, really good stuff. Yeah, and actually, Sculpin was bought for a billion dollars by Think Heineken uh, Dang, wow. a few years ago. Yeah, so must be, must be damn good. A lot of places now. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So are you you're like a pure IPA guy. Did you initially start with just pale ales, kind of ease your way into that? Okay. Yeah, I mean, like Sierra Nevada is sort of the go-to nice beer when you're a you're a young buck in Northern California, just uh, getting used <laughs> to beer, and you can afford to splurge once in a while. So that was a starter. But yeah, my dad drinking uh, Lagunitas meant it was often in the fridge, so I got got right into it that way. But lately, I've been moving more towards pilsners. I need that like more, a little bit lighter, less less heavy, uh, lower alcohol, and you know, refreshing taste. So I'm into that and. Let me just plug our local brewery here in uh, the Hudson Valley in uh, Beacon, New York is called Industrial Arts. And mm. they have a spectacular pale ale, Pilsner, and uh, Northeast and West Coast IPAs. We'll link that. Right. Definitely link that in the notes. IPAs nice. definitely got that bite, right? Like it's uh, it's it's not exactly a pairing with food, but it's a like <laughs> you could just have it on its own. You go, wow, it's a mm-hmm. unique experience. It is food. Yeah. Yeah. It's food. I like I like flavors that like smack me in the tongue, both both in food and drink. So IPA definitely yeah. hits that spot. Excellent. But there okay. definitely seems to be a trend to the like more session beer the last like five years of like low yeah. ABV, easy to drink, may have a yeah. little hops in it, but you know, usually lighter. Yeah. Yeah. There's a time and a place for that. But yeah, my yeah. go-to is still, still the, the full force IPA. Love it. Love it. Josh, we saw in a past life, you were a street canvasser for John Kerry, in addition to a bunch of other things that you got to do in your in your career. I saw you worked for the Nature Convert Conservancy. Um, you've worked for a couple other climate companies. But what was it like being a street canvasser? We saw you did it right out of college, too. Yeah. Yeah, that was my first paying gig out of undergrad, 2004. Oh. I was... Not a fan of George W. Bush during or after college. And so, you know, kind of bumming around L.A. I went I moved to L.A. after finishing undergrad in Connecticut and uh, wanted to get in the movies, but wanted to, like, get a quote unquote real job first. So this one kind of kind of fit the bill. And, yeah, it was it was actually a great experience. It only lasted maybe four months. So it was basically the yeah, it would have been July to November of 04. And then I would just stand on street corners in LA and just really ask people, hey, want to give money to the to the Gary campaign? And 
Obviously, the answer was no about 90% of the time, but the other 10% was either a donation or, you know, interesting conversation or both. So good training for like sales skills, right? Like being, being like an approachable, good conversationalist, but also able to give good reasons like why you should give this candidate money and not the other guy or, you know, whatever, whatever, find that person's interest and go there and, and see if you can spin that into a reason to donate to the campaign. I always wondered, do you guys, do canvassers get training on the talking points and the policies? And because I, I can imagine you get a dozen hard questions of people who, if they don't agree with you, especially. Yeah, there is, it's minimal training. So the organization <laughs> I worked for was actually like a, a third party that was contract, the, contracted by DNC, the Democratic mm-hmm. National Committee. And actually it was interesting because when we first started in the summer, the talking points were very clear, like just like find people who hate George W. Bush and say like, (laughs) give money to keep him from being reelected. And then in the fall, when Kerry, I think, you know, people learn more about him and were maybe less interested in him than they were before as the spaceless alternative to GW, then the talking points change. And they said, oh, talk about John Kerry. He's a veteran. He wants to do this and that. And to be honest, I, I probably kept using the George W. is bad approach because that was just more effective. <laughs> Fair. It landed better. It seems like it's mm-hmm. the doing that, being a street canvasser was great fodder for what you end up doing later working in PR. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's communications is a very broad field and there's a lot of sort of subgenres of it. And, you know, everybody has their different vision of what it encompasses and what it doesn't. But I think Really, you know, any job you take is going to have some element of communicating with customers, investors, your colleagues, regulators, voters, whatever. And so the more you have opportunity to like really develop skills around that of communicating effectively and, Mm. you know, being a compelling speaker, uh, the better, the more successful you'll be in whatever career you pick. You got to start learning like what message starts to resonate. Like you were saying a minute ago, like it's an interesting like testing ground (laughs) to test out a response. And it's so real time, you know, right there in someone's face, right next to someone like, man, maybe not as many data points, but you definitely get that like instant reaction, right? Yeah, no, that's true. And that that was really helpful for me. And I totally, I mean, I would change my approach based on where I was because I would learn patterns of what type of people are here. Like could be really rich people from Beverly Hills going shopping, or it could be Mm. like more like regular folk walking home from work and, you know, um, East LA and different approaches, different points of emphasis, different sort of vernacular for each one. And I, you know, did it enough to learn what worked where and, and customize my approach. And yeah, eventually I got promoted to manager and, you know, they, invited me to stay on after the election, but I had bigger aspirations of being a movie star, <laughs> which didn't quite pan out in case you haven't noticed. Did you get to do some acting, like uh, acting training? Do you do some, maybe some commercials mm-hmm. for theater? Uh, a little bit. So I took classes at the Groundlings, which is a pretty famous mm. um, yeah. improv troupe out in LA. Never got to perform. I did, you had to like rise through the ranks until you get to actually perform. I didn't quite make it that high, but the classes were awesome. They were so helpful. And I heard recently that they're, I don't know if this is true, but that uh, at Harvard Business School, you're required to take an improvisational acting class because the skills are transferable to, you know, pitch meetings or whatever else. Like you got to be able to think on your feet and like keep, you know, the core objective in mind and not get thrown off by whatever, you know, the people you're meeting Mm -hmm. with might throw at you. So if that's true, it's a great idea, (laughs) but um, if not, they should do it. I too in a past life. 
try to become an actor. Nice. Pretty much out of college. I got to do some commercials. Nice. This strange Amazon book film that never was released, but uh, it's a, yeah, it's definitely a, a, I don't know, fly by the seat of your pants in some way, uh, sort of a thing. You just having to, and you have to be so present. It's almost meditative acting, releasing, releasing yourself to it. Uh, so Josh, I'm looking at your discography of, of your career a little bit right now. And my IMDb. Yeah, your, your IMDb. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> speaking of the film and you get to work at some really cool places, you know, New York City Mayor's Office, Earth Justice. Uh, I actually have a friend who works there. She's amazing. Huffington Post. You were an energy blogger. I mentioned Nature Conservancy. So when did you start getting interested in the climate space? It seems like it started to seep into your discography pretty soon after. I think it really started, so I mentioned I grew up in Northern California, and probably the most frequent vacation that I took growing up was spending time in Yosemite or other national or state parks around the state, and usually I would go backpacking. So, you know, put everything in a pack and head into the to the sticks for three, four, or five days. My dad was just all about that. He loved everything about being in the mountains, sitting by a fire, fly fishing was always a big part of it, so... That was where you know started over the course of my you know tens and teens teen years really like developing an awareness and appreciation of the outdoors and nature and how it gives us as humans so much and we take so much from it and you know it's it seems like I wanted to do something with my life that would help facilitate conservation protection and sort of maintenance of nature and and wildlife and all those things that it gave to us and actually my dad who was a lawyer. He did a lot of uh, pro bono work for a nonprofit called the High Sierra Hikers Association. And all they do is sue national parks for letting too many people or too many horses or too many mules into a certain area and like devastating the ecosystem. Or sometimes Uh, they will allow private operators to lead those kind of trips into the park and not enforce existing laws about, you know, what they had to do in terms of minimizing their impact. So uh, anyway, he was a sort of uh, an example of like, yeah, that's not a typical thing you think of as like environmental activism, you know, suing the parks department as a corporate lawyer, but he spent a lot of time on it and, uh, you know, notched a lot of victories. And, and then I thought that was a pretty cool thing. So I wanted to do my own version of that when I, when the time came. Okay. Gotcha. What's the word to describe someone who loves nature and they kind of feed off nature? Oh. It's not to my tongue. I have to get back to you about that. Uh, mm, I don't know. I want to yeah, know that too. <laughs> just like, you know, it's like Francophiles, people who love French culture. Uh, and then there's a, there's, there's a word for, for the nature based one. But what role did climate change or action play in accept, accepting or starting this role with Redway Communications? That's the starting point for my entire career, dating back mm-hmm. 10 years. And, and I think up until about, so I graduated undergrad 2004, and then up to 2011, I was just sort of bumping around different comms jobs. I worked in an ad tech startup doing commercials, uh, did a lot of copywriting, did some like essentially content marketing. And the content marketing job was my first job in New York City when I moved there. And through that job, I learned about just incredible clean energy technologies. Even back then, somebody had made a machine where you could dump in municipal waste from your trash can or from a landfill, and out the other end would come crude oil that you could turn into gasoline or diesel or anything else. Um, and so the more I learned about that, the more I was just like, wow, like these these technologies are already here. Like they're just gonna turn into an incredible world-changing hmm. industry, you know, in my lifetime. 
and added bonus, they'll save all of us from dying in a you know horrendous uh, conflagration of proportions uh, <laughs> that we've never seen before. Yeah. So uh, between economic opportunity and my desire to you know help solve what I call the greatest challenge that humanity has ever faced slash created for itself. That's what made me decide, all right, this is this is the direction I want to take my career. And, and that's what led me to go to grad school in 2011. Excellent. Excellent. All right. And I did find that word for us. It's called biophiliac. Uh, and it biophiliac. Literally means, yeah, and it must be Latin. So it means love of life. And it's a term we created to suggest that human beings have an instinctive love for the natural world that has been engendered by evolution to help us survive. It actually right. goes even deeper than I even realized. I thought it was just love of yeah. nature. It's it's uh, it's more of like a symbiotic relationship with nature. Biophiliac. Cool. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. I'm definitely going to start throwing that one around. Steal it. Okay. Steal it. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, let's let's kind of hop into the zeitgeist of climate. You know, you mentioned 2010, 2011. You started working in content marketing. The the narrative around climate in 2010, 2011, it was very different than it was now. Could you share how that's changed? And let's just say since 2010, 2011. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating. And you can really track the arc of, of this in a lot of different ways. But you know, my recollection is, and for me, a big touch point was, well, I would say like 2010, let's say, climate change was out there. It was understood as a concept. Nobody really cared about it that much. It was kind of like, well, it's this thing that might happen in like 50 years. And at that point, well, I figured it out anyway, so ah, I don't worry about it. And then, yeah. of course, there was, you know, very active propaganda campaigns from the oil and gas industry, some of it overt, some of it covert through, you know, many different intermediaries that were pushing that. Of, oh, it's either not real or it's not worth worrying about. Don't let, you know, Al Gore and his uh, army of uh, worry warts, you know turn your life upside down. They're just mm. like being annoying. Um, and what I saw as a big turning point was actually uh, Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy more accurately in New York City. I was living in Brooklyn at the time and man, I've never seen New York City brought to its knees that way. So we lived in Brooklyn. We took a car trip the next day where that took us through lower Manhattan and it was empty. It was just like a zombie movie like there were no people on the streets there like so many streets were flooded and blocked two tunnels were unusable so that was pretty shocking and in addition to that just like casual conversations i would have in the following months so many people were like wow okay this climate change thing is real and it's actually not happening in 50 years it's happening right now so i think that that to me at least you know in my sort of new york city lens that was the turning point of people sort of realizing the average person being more aware of climate change. I think at that time, there was still a lot of not much understanding of what any individual person could do about it or how much they should care about it, or how fast it would happen. But uh, that was when I think it really made its way into the mainstream in, in a pretty um, obvious way. Yeah. And that was in 2012. And it was the largest hurricane on record as measured by diameter by a tropical storm force uh, with winds spanning about 1200 miles that's yeah that's huge that's really and the reason they called it a superstorm was because that hurricane so the wind and rain was paired with an unprecedented storm surge so sea levels went way higher than they ever get normally uh -huh. that's what caused a lot of the flooding so those two things happening uh -huh. together 
was the reason that it like just decimated so many different parts of the city and, and did billions and billions of dollars of damage. Okay. So people became more accepting of the concept of climate change around 2012, 2013. What is there another inciting incident between that 10 year period from now to 2012? That's a good question, actually. I would be actually hard pressed to identify a single event of that magnitude. Yeah. And also, I don't I don't want to give yeah. Katrina the short shrift either. That was equally devastating yeah. for the people of New Orleans and around there. But I think that was 2005. So it is to me that's telling that it was captured the you know national attention for sure. But very rarely at the time were connections made, you know, in news reporting and commentary on the storm and the and the aftermath to climate change. And you know, Sandy was different. But yeah, between then and now, I mean, I would say wildfires have probably affected millions more people just in the last five or six years in the US, especially on the West Coast, than in previous decades. And I think that's again being from California, you know, I'm often in California in the summer when those wildfires happen. And I think very similar sort of trend there maybe seven eight years later where more and more people are like whoa okay this climate change thing is real and wow i can't go outside the air is not healthy to breathe yeah. or i can't insure my house because i live in a fire prone area okay climate change has arrived and it's scary and uh you know it's, it's affecting my life have you noticed it's more acceptable to talk about climate progressively every year between you know friends and family like layman's, you know, like we're, we're not all yeah. climate scientists, right? And we're not all academics. Right. Have you noticed it's gotten easier every year or do you think it goes through leaps? I think it is progressively getting easier. My theory is, and actually there's really good social science data about this. The Yale program in climate change communications does surveys multiple times a year to sort of track this progress. Um, and the one that really sticks with me is that it was, this was middle of last year. About half, I think it was about 50% of registered voters identified climate change as a, like an issue of concern. So that's you know way higher than five years prior or certainly 10 years ago. But two-thirds of survey respondents said that they almost are never talking about it. So I think it's more, it's more broadly understood. It's more acceptable to like bring it up, but people don't bring it up and they don't talk about it. They don't talk about problem solution or you know what's what's coming next or how am i going to prepare for the next superstorm standy or uh you know hurricane or flood or wildfire it's just sort of like in the back of everyone's mind making us all pretty anxious and mm. very few people you know are again this is changing i think more people are getting comfortable with it but i think if we just don't talk about it enough i don't think so either i try to talk about it as often as i can like almost daily if i get the opportunity to it's always interesting to see that how people's varying reactions to it. Most of the people yeah. up here in Washington accept it and are willing to talk about it in some way. And then, you know, I get the few people, they just don't want to talk about it at all, or they just want to change the subject because it's it's perhaps that uncomfortable or it has like it's it's too intimate of a topic, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And I think that's that's to me one of the main challenges I'm trying to conquer both in my career and my personal life is like. Hey, pick up your head, everybody. Like, sure, it looks bad. It is bad. Frankly, it's going to get worse in terms of the impacts of climate change. But we are the masters of our own destiny. Like, we're the things we do now are going to, you know, have a huge impact on how much, you know, pain we go through in a couple of decades from now. So, like, let's let's get on that. Let's like get positive. And the thing I always tell people, and, you know, often friends will come to me and say, like, Hey, my kid just asked me about climate change. It's like, what the hell do I say? Like, I, I don't want to scare them. Um, like, but you know, it's bad. Right. And my answer is always, yes, it is bad. 
But what I say to my own kids is like, number one, we have the technology to solve it. We know. And there's like more and more data comes out every day that's showing that, you know, we can do it. We don't need to invent anything new. It's all been invented. The obstacle is money, governments, and sort of undoing very, very old habits that start with using fossil fuels for pretty much everything. And what I also tell my kids and people who are freaked out is like, there's lots of really smart people working on this. So, you know, scientists, academics, researchers, and of course, people that I deal with every day, climate tech founders that just are mm-hmm. so inspiring and come up with the wackiest ideas that are awesome because not only do they work, but most of them have uh, real potential for being profitable. Yeah. We'll talk more about that later. You guys represent some pretty cool companies that, that do exactly Thank that. You. I think so too. Josh, what is a climate communicator? We saw you mention this and it was a, a webinar that you hosted and, and then a couple of different articles. What exactly is a climate communicator? Can be different definitions, but my definition would be someone who is effective at sort of, you know, conveying what I just said in a very digestible way that will both, uh, you know, inform and inspire people to, to take action. The one example that I will bring up all the time and and anyone who's even remotely interested in climate change, I demand that they watch this YouTube channel. channel. It's called Climate Town, and it was uh, created by a guy named uh, Raleigh Williams, former stand-up comedian uh, who also studied, uh, got the same degree I got at Columbia studying uh, environmental Mm -hmm. science and policy. He makes amazing, probably the best way to describe it is like John Oliver style videos um, that are incredibly well-researched and like very well put together, but also hilarious and To me, he is the exact kind of climate communicator we need right now because he is informed, he educates people, but he lets the, it's the antidote to that doom and gloom we were just talking about, right? It's like, this can be funny. It's okay. Like we're, we're facing this huge challenge as a species and we can joke about it while we try to fix it and try to undo the damage and try to fight back against, you know, the people and companies that want to just keep going along as if nothing's happening and, and uh, maintain the status quo. And so, yeah, so yeah, to sum up, somebody who effectively communicates information about climate change and, and, you know, can help spur people into action, whether that action is voting or going to, you know, a city council meeting uh, to talk about, you know, some climate related issue. That's the kind of stuff that's going to actually, you know, change our society uh, for the better and get us through this. So climate town, what is he doing? That's working. If, if you were to break it down a little more meta. Yeah. Well, he, he digs really deep. So same as John Oliver, right? Like he had John Oliver, I assume has a huge staff of people that just sit and like go through research all day. Raleigh and his team, which I, I'm pretty sure is much smaller. They, they do that same thing where they can pull out the exact memo that Exxon sent in 1995, identifying that climate change is happening and will likely accelerate. And will like, just put a quick screenshot up there. So first thing he does is this like real tight collection of information packaging it up and making fun of everything that got us here, right? And making jokes about, wow, how stupid are we to have been fooled by Exxon all this time? Or, you know, making fun of a senator bringing a snowball to the Senate as proof that climate change doesn't exist because it still gets cold. Just like finding, (laughs) not always, not even always satire, but just like injecting humor wherever it's like pretty obvious. So yeah, so I think, but also, and so that's sort of like, yeah, information, accurate information, good research, humor, and keeping it pretty concise. Like he can break it down really well and make these concepts accessible to people who have little to no background information on on these type of issues. 
Yeah, I actually got to see his the video on gas stoves that he did. Yeah, you, you had posted it, and it was done really really well. He's really good at keeping your attention, uh, in, yeah, in a short form, you know, 120 seconds. How would a climate communicator know that it's working? Like what they've done has been successful of how they've communicated. Yeah, I mean, I think <laughs> sort of the flippant answer, which I think is also true, is like, yeah, they go viral. Like that's that's the information <laughs> economy that we live in, right? Like that's like if you're able to hit a certain level of your stuff gets passed around social media by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people, then you know it's working and it's reaching the people, whoever you're trying to reach, whether it's policymakers or consumers or local politicians or whatever, like if it's reaching millions of people, you better believe that they're going to hear about it and yeah. you're, you're going to have some kind of impact, hopefully it's the impact that you intend but if you know that you're getting people to stop scrolling on their phones and look at one thing for two, five, or 20 minutes, some of, most of his videos are a little bit longer, then you know, you know you're, you're onto something and you'll, you'll start building an audience. And then with that audience comes influence. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Don't Look Up was a great example of that with how many times it was, it was viewed and how much yeah. conversation started. There's a lot of media and polarizing reactions to it. Is that right too? Absolutely. Would you consider that a good example of someone yeah. trying to be a climate communicator? Oh, 100%. Yeah, Adam McKay is a genius at doing that. And I love that he has basically devoted his career as a director for, you know, for the foreseeable future to like making more don't look ups. And that's why, yeah, that webinar that Redwood did for Climate Week last year, we titled it, Are We Looking Up? Question mark Because that <laughs> I thought that that movie encapsulated exactly what needs to be done in climate communications in that not everybody loved it. I loved it. I thought it was hilarious. It's the dark humor was just like right, right in my sweet spot. Um, but a lot of people are like, oh, it's too heavy handed or I didn't get it or it didn't make sense. But number one, a billion people watched it like you talked about. Wow. Number two, in all of the promotion around it, he and Netflix made very clear. This is a movie about climate change. This is an allegory. So even people, uh, I'm, I'm sure there are pretty probably a pretty big subset of viewers who didn't know that but the vast majority did and because of that whether they liked it or not they started thinking about climate change they started right. talking about the right. movie they started talking about climate change in the context of the movie with their friends and then it's yeah. like he did it that was a successful effort right yeah that's so too the story the inception story of redwood communications i got a little bit of a hint of it in some research i did which was around strange roof strategies which is a Pretty well-known PR firm in, is it in, on the East Coast in New York, but they also have offices across the country. Is yeah, that, they're actually based on the West Coast. They have an based office on the West in San Francisco. Okay, got it. What is the abbreviated story of Redwood Communications and how, how you ended up, ended up starting this? I started in PR at another firm, uh, and after five years, I, I, I become a, a vice president there, and I really liked it. But I was starting to think of like, where do I go from here? Like, what's next for me? And one thing I really wanted that I wasn't quite getting at the time was I want to feel like I'm really, I can make climate action and activism more of a central part of what I'm doing. Um, so obviously, I mean, I'm not fooling myself. We represent climate tech companies. And so that's not quite activism, especially since we get paid for it. But it is super important to like, as I was saying, get the information out there about these amazing solutions, because that's what I think so many people need to hear. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that was, I, I was lucky enough to work only on climate tech accounts and, and get to know a lot of really cool founders at that job, but wanted to like, yeah, make it a little more directly in my day to day is about, Hey, we're out here to help 
try to contribute to solutions. And that's, mm. you know, a more of a mission driven sort of uh, nine to five. And around that same time, I got linked up with John O'Brien and Dave Donahue. So those are the two co-founders of uh, Strange Brew Strategies or SBS. We talked about me going to work for them. And I said, you know, I really only care about climate tech. If you guys have work in that category, then great. If not, I'm not your guy. And they didn't. So I wasn't their guy. And then when we circled back a couple months later, we said, well, wait, what if we started a new company that only did climate tech PR? Spinoff. Um, and yeah, exactly. So, well, not exactly a spinoff, but basically they were saying, you know, we want to help you get it off the ground, but we don't really know the first thing about climate tech. So you would have to do everything. And so, yeah, I mean, long story short, it was uh, an offer I couldn't refuse because (laughs) all of the fun and excitement of starting my own shop and being able to, you know, create a brand that I believed in and did all those things that I wanted to do with my day-to-day work with much lower risk. So I was able to, you know, get health insurance. I had, you know, sort of a a salary ready to go just through our company founding arrangement. And, uh, Mm -hmm. And yeah, so that was officially launched in September of 2021. And uh, the three of us are, are co-owners of the business. But yeah, the day-to-day at Redwood is really just me and my team who I've accumulated over that last 18 months. And, you know, they're basically my board of directors and we're, you know, in touch on a quarterly basis and, and talk about big picture stuff. But uh, yeah, Redwood operates independently. That's clever. I think that the creation of it is clever. I came on to use the word spinoff, but that's that's not right. And because I know you'd gone a master's in public admin at Columbia and that gave you a foundation of kind of the science part of everything that's going on in climate because there's a lot of information that equipped you with that. And then, you know, you being able to say, I want to make this more of, you know, something I do many hours a week, not just, you know, sitting on a a part-time basis and that they were open to an idea like that. I think that's super cool. Yeah. And they were, like I said, they didn't know much about climate tech or tech side or the history or any of it, but they saw an opportunity. Um, and I think that's what, you know, really made sense. I think sense it's a right opportunity. And yeah. Totally. Totally. That's yeah. So and that's, good. yeah. And I, and again, I, I am very thankful to them and it's really cool to talk with them and just, you know, go over the arc of the company, even just a year and a half in and, and think about what might be next and great to get their perspective on general matters of PR and, and, you know, that kind of thing. And then I can educate them a little bit on, you know, what's the hot new sector or new company and, what VCs are investing in who and totally. they're enjoying learning about it through me. So you're focused on just climate tech companies, or there's a couple different terminologies, green tech, eco-friendly earth. Well, yeah. Who is your customer? <laughs> who are you focused on? How do you kind of classify all this? Yeah. And the nomenclature is all over the place, but I'm a stickler for words and definitions being used consistently. Yeah. So I'll give you mine. To me, climate tech is any technology whose primary purpose is to help humans mitigate or adapt to climate change. So you're either reducing emissions, sucking carbon out of the air indirectly or directly, or you're helping societies like adjust to this new reality that we live in, wildfires, flooding, hurricanes, et cetera. And and that's pretty much it. It's it's pretty broad. It's very flexible, but uh, it works for me. I have turned down clients where they say, oh yeah, this technology that does this thing. And I'm like, okay, there's some benefit to the climate there, but your main purpose is to, you know, filter water at oil and gas drilling sites. And that's, that's not something I'm willing, I'm willing to like help you brag about. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a judgment call. I like to like, if there's any company where it's like, ah, do they fit in the category or not? I, you know, I talk it over with my team and we sort of make a decision together, but ultimately 
it's pretty clear to me, you know, on the face of it, once I learn the basics of a company, whether they, they fit the mold or not. But we do also work with environmental nonprofits. So we've done a lot of work okay. with like local nonprofits promoting an organization out in, in uh, San Francisco called Charge Across Town. They've been promoting EVs for like 10 years. I'm working with the Nature Conservancy and yeah, really any nonprofit that's you know, doing good environmental or, or climate work. So yeah, so that's pretty much, you know, I might say like environmental or climate nonprofit uh, or climate tech, and that pretty much captures everybody that we have or, or will work with. And that's helpful. I mean, I think I love this whole vein around climate communicators and loved that term when I heard you bring it up in a, in a previous uh, podcast you did. But it immediately made me think about a lot of the stuff that Jacob and I have been learning this whole season in the climate tech, eco-friendly, environmentally focused uh, startups and founders, operators that we've been talking to, which is all of this terminology. I'm glad you brought that up because it feels like, and this even goes back to what you said a minute ago around like people not knowing how to talk about this. It feels like this world has its own vocabulary. (laughs) It has its own terminology. And I think as a climate communicator, as you are, and as Jacob and I are trying to learn to be, It's a really interesting, in my mind, question, but the question isn't just, is there its own vocabulary? Because there seems to be, but it's like, is this the right way to communicate this? I think that's the more challenging question, and I want to push on that a little bit, but does this industry need its own language? If if we do, how are we getting it out there? How do we get people to know, know what we're talking about when we say all these new terms? Yeah, that's a great question, It's and it's it's definitely a challenge. Part of my job as a PR professional, and this is true for all PR practitioners, is like, got to break it down, make it simple for people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I happen to work in an industry that is quite complex in many cases. <laughs> so standard procedure for any comms professionals, you start with who's your audience? Who are you trying to talk to? Who are you trying to like impress or capture the attention of? And if the answer is, well, the general public, consumers, we want them to care about this. Then we got to like, just strip out all the language, only use terms that people are going to know already. So climate change, climate crisis, uh, global warming. Eh, I'm not a huge fan of that because I think that's a little less well understood. Climate impacts, resilience, you know, just the most basic language. But if you're talking to climate tech investors, then you maybe want to throw in more jargon because they might be super into carbon dioxide removal or CDR uh, or protect or particularly direct air capture, which is the type of carbon dioxide removal or DAC. So yeah, short answer is it depends on who you're talking to, but I'm always trying to ex- you know, m- expand the edges of the tent by keeping the language as simple as it can possibly be. Let me ask maybe a controversial question. Please. Is that the right, is that the right way to do this? I think you brought it up when you were talking about canvassing and being able to, to meet your audience where they are and what they care about. Creating new terminology creates its own friction, you know, right away. Yeah. Like I got to learn yeah. this thing. I got to learn what you're talking about. And then I got to understand why I care. You know, yeah. is this the right way to go from a PR perspective? Like you're a professional and that's what I'm trying to dig into. Like, is there a different way or a better way or a, another, a sideways way that we could go at this that might be more impactful that you're trying oh, yeah. to I do mean, or working on? Yeah, no, I think absolutely. The way is you take what is understood, terms that are understood now, and you lock those in and you just use those until they're replaced by something else. But introducing new language, 
I would never say Dak to like an average person, <laughs> right? Um, because that's you know that's a waste of everyone's time. But to say like, hey, it's possible to actually slow down climate change by taking those emissions from smokestacks and like sucking them back into the earth. That's pretty cool, right? And that's yeah. what DAC is. That's all it is. So it's just about nice. understanding nice. like there is a simple way to explain every climate technology. And it just depends on who you're talking to and what you want to get out of it to determine, you know, how much you want to break it down, how simple you want to make the language. Whoa, what a blast. What'd you think so far? Are you hungry for more? Go check out part two of this conversation. But before you go, could you do us a huge favor? And subscribe to the show wherever you're listening to it right now. It'd mean the world to us. Oh, and if you're feeling a little frisky and you want to give us some feedback, go to climatemayhem.com where you'll find our contact link. See you soon. Mm-hmm.